Welcome, listeners, to the Editor's Desk podcast for First Things Magazine. I'm Rusty Reno, the editor at his desk, and I have with me Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal, to talk about his marvelous review of a new book about Ivan Illich, Ivan Illich, An Intellectual Journey. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Rusty, uh, very glad to be on. Thank you. It's a beautiful book by David Cayley. I mean, a wonderful homage. Uh, I don't know how long he spent working on that book, but it's uh, extraordinarily detailed and covers his entire career and body of work. Yeah, he's um, he's really been single-handedly responsible for reviving Illich's um, public reputation, not just in this uh, very, very detailed an extensive intellectual biography, but in two previous books of interviews uh, that he had conducted with Illich, uh, one of which, Rivers North to the Future, uh, is is just a, a superb introduction to Illich's thought as well. He's written for us, David Cayley. I discovered him early on during the pandemic. He had just sober, thoughtful things to say about drawing upon Illich, things to say about about the kind of technological, the technocratic confidence with which we entered into the pandemic. And and so we've had him write on a number of different topics for the First Things website. So I'm just so delighted to be able to run such an extensive review that you have provided. But let's, let's, uh, Illich, he was uh, a wunderkind, wasn't he? Right. He, He was born in Vienna, in 1926, um, early on exhibited a, a remarkable facility for languages. He wound up speaking multiple tongues, uh, was was very, very charismatic figure. You know, his family had to flee the Nazis uh, and uh, relocated to Florence, I believe, in 1942, and then he began a kind of, uh, inter, you know, intellectual formation at the University of Florence, where he studied uh, uh, metals and science. Then he wound up doing a PhD in medieval history at the University of Salzburg, uh, where he wrote a dissertation on Toynbee and Toynbee's philosophy of history. And then he, he entered the Pontifical uh, Gregorian University in Rome, and was eventually ordained a priest in 1951, and uh, was widely recognized at the time by, uh, you know, church leaders as as a future prince of the church, as as somebody with extraordinary talent. He had an allergy, though, to uh, institutions, at least as they were configured in the modern era, and he wound up really kind of walking away, I suppose, from a glorious career as a Roman um, cleric in the Vatican, didn't he? Yeah, he, he left shortly after being ordained. He took a steamship to New York, uh, where he had come to do some research and uh, wound up becoming a parish priest in Washington Heights in Manhattan, which was at the time uh, a barrio of new Puerto Rican immigrants. These were were among the poorest residents of New York. 
Um, it was an, a new community in the city. Uh, they weren't fully integrated into the life of New York at the time. And he became a parish priest there with the blessing of Cardinal Spellman. And uh, his, his parishioners loved him. They, they recognized his remarkable devotion to the church. Uh, but he also saw in that community something very, very appealing, a kind of uh, communal Catholicism. And he really worked to, to, uh, to bring um, the Puerto Rican community into the life of New York into the life of the church in America. And he hoped that the, the, the Catholic uh, uh, communities of, of America would also learn from the Puerto Ricans. Um, and he went on from there in 1956. So he, he served as a parish priest for four years and then became the vice rector of uh, the Catholic University at Ponce in Puerto Rico. And that was in 1956, and again with Cardinal Spellman's uh, blessing. I mean, I, I gather that if we look back at his time in Washington Heights and then in Puerto Rico, he, well, although he was an intellectual of extraordinary uh, gifts and received, um, you know, quite a thorough elite education, he really appreciated the wisdom of folk traditions. And, and I suppose that was kind of when I read Cayley, he thought he learned as much from the Puerto Ricans in New York as he taught them. And that carried over to his time in Puerto Rico as well. Yeah, no, no question. Um, you know, he, as I say, he really thought that the American Catholic communities could learn from the Puerto Ricans from their communal Catholicism. Um, and you're right, it carried over to his position uh, in Puerto Rico itself, uh, where he got involved with training missionaries. And uh, he became very critical of uh, the presumption of missionaries coming from uh, more developed societies to um, poorer ones. He, he really felt that they were, they were coming with a kind of arrogance um, that they, I guess what we would call cultural imperialism today. Yeah, he didn't use that language exactly, mm -hmm. but um, but he he felt that they needed to come instead in a spirit of humility, uh, in which um, you know there there was a, a, a respect for local culture, uh, there was a willingness to uh, learn from the local culture, um, and you, you know that there were local expressions of the faith. And that, you know, more broadly, the, the modern development models that were all the rage at the time, the idea that every society must, uh, must become like an advanced Western uh, industrial democracy, uh, he was very critical of that. He thought it would, um, y you know, result in the development of inappropriate needs. It would uh, corrode the kind of vernacular ways of understanding and life that made poverty tolerable for uh, people in these communities. So, you know, he, he did train missionaries and, and uh, uh, it was a rigorous program in language instruction, uh, but also in this, this spirit of, uh, uh, of poverty, which he believed was properly Christian. It was, I think, in Puerto Rico that the basic thesis of his first book, which was quite a blockbuster, 
maybe not his first book, but at least the one that the first one that gained widespread readership, de-schooling society, that he his his sense was and the thesis was that that the modern approach to education or the modern school can incapacitate just as much as it capacitates. Um, and as you said, it, it can make people, as I was thinking about it, I had the kind of contemporary college or bust mentality in our schools that kind of sets up more than half of the school population for disappointment and a feeling that they really cannot succeed in society. And of course, he developed this in all sorts of more more detailed ways, this notion of incapacitation caused by schooling. Right. He was he he wrote this book in or it, it appeared in 1971, but it did draw on his experience in Puerto Rico um, while he was there at the Catholic University. Uh, he was responsible for overseeing the the local school system, which had, had really just started getting underway. And what he what he realized was that every young Puerto Rican was entering that system, but very few were making it all the way through. So in his view, it, it, it was really like a system for creating uh, dropouts or producing dropouts. And so that this, this added a, a new sense of uh, insufficiency or guilt to many people, which made their existing poverty even worse. Uh, so, so that, you know, he, he wanted to look at the system in, in terms of how it actually functioned. And you're right, this is, this is uh, a point Kaylee explicitly makes, you know, today when we look at uh, Western educational systems in the United States and elsewhere, degrees have become uh, social status sorters, um, you know, that, that they, they're credentialing systems in which, in fact, the majority of young people who enter college don't eventually graduate. And now we're talking about Probably 16 years of schooling is is being required for for many jobs. So you know that that book, while it's it's very radical in expression, contains some very very interesting ideas about disestablishing schools from state um, and and having a freer, uh, more um, pluralistic approach to learning rather than mandated education. You know, why do we need credentials for many jobs? You don't. Uh, there, there, there should be other ways for people to prove their their ability to do a job. Um, and, and also, why, there's why, the, why should everybody go to college? Or, indeed, <laughs> it's. Uh, but it's also the factory-like quality of the modern school. You know, segregating the the children by age. I've noticed that homeschooled kids are often much more adept at engaging adults um, and people outside of their immediate age group than kids who go to to um, to regular schools and, and he, he, he dwells on so there's a the school the modern school can it, it can uh, impede the transmission of uh, the wisdom of tradition so to speak from one generation to the next well he uh, Illich was an influence on the homeschooling movement in the United States, uh, especially the the unschoolers, as they're called. Um, and uh, it's it's absolutely the case that 
you know, I've, I've studied the homeschooling movement. I wrote an essay some years ago for City Journal, and, you know, the argument often made against homeschooling is that, well, the children aren't going to be socialized properly, but it's in fact exactly the opposite. The idea of socializing people by putting them together in this rigid bureaucratized system where where age groups are all herded together, um, that's something relatively new in history, and it's not really the best way to socialize young people and homeschooling families. Um, in my experience, their their kids often uh, are having relationships, um, you know, learning relationships, friend relationships with people of a wide variety of age groups. So, in fact, they're being socialized in in a very different way, and uh, in in my experience, anyway, uh, often superior ways. So, it yes, Illich, you know, Illich. Uh, it's a very radical critique of education as it's currently being conducted. He he didn't think that disestablishing schools would mean that people would stop learning or that schools would even disappear. He he just believed that it would be, um, you know, better if if you know people have always been able to educate themselves, learn. Um, you know, he saw uh, the the emergence of computers as a potentially good thing in this context in which you could establish learning networks where, you know, people could educate themselves uh, by, by um, you know, c- making contracts with willing educators. Um, and this, you know, he was writing this book long before you, you had the development of all of these online instructional programs. Um, so, you know, the, the, the idea of Shifting from this kind of suffocating, imagination-free, bureaucratized uh, current system and moving towards something more decentralized, more freedom-based, um, that's that's a takeaway uh, I had from de-schooling um, society, and I, I think it's uh, you know it's it's worth returning to that book uh, for for some of those lessons, even even if you know we we don't go all the way with Illich and embrace the idea of, of completely getting rid of any kind of uh, mandated education. His other famous book was Medical Nemesis, uh, arguing for the, the way in which we, in a certain sense, um, have lost any capacity to, to sort of take care of our own health. We, we turn it all over to professionals. That was also a controversial book in its day. Yeah, you mentioned Cayley drawing on Illich, uh, criticizing our current situation with our response to the pandemic. And uh, I would say Medical Nemesis, which came out in 1975, is is a book worth revisiting in the context of the last uh, two years plus now. Um, You know, there he does lay lay out uh, this very powerful critique of iatrogenesis, which is medically cause illness. Um, and, you know, he, he goes through three different forms of iatrogenesis, the clinical form, which we're probably familiar with, where people have adverse reaction to drugs or, um, you know, catch something at a hospital. Uh, but he also talks about a social iatrogenesis in which new needs get created, where people's uh, uh, capacity for self-care gets eroded. Um, 
You know, and you think here of something like the opioid addiction crisis, which was a socially created uh, crisis uh, via a medical bureaucracy emphasizing the need to relieve pain. Uh, and then on you know the deepest level, he, he talks about cultural iatrogenesis, and this is the, the kind of modern project to eliminate death, to eliminate all suffering, um, you know, robbing death, in his view, of, of any kind of religious or philosophical meaning and, and destroying what he called the art of suffering. So, you know, all of that, I think, is, is an important warning of not surrendering um, our freedoms, our capacities to uh, what, what one could call technical medical despotism. You know, Ron DeSantis just gave a speech last week where he sounded like Illich, where he was saying uh, we we had to oppose, you know, this kind of bureaucratic health um, totalitarianism. I, I think he was being hyperbolic, uh, as Illich himself is often hyperbolic, but there's a grain of truth to it when we see what's happened uh, over the last uh, two two years plus, as I said, with you know, the, lock, the imposition of lockdowns and the erosion of, of freedoms that would have been, um, you know, assumed to be inviolable uh, pre-pandemic. I always think, I mean, for me, the leitmotif in Illich's work is what I would call the, the dangers of cultural disability. We have physical disability, but they can also have cultural disability. You mentioned the loss of the art of suffering, our inability to actually grapple with death, which is inevitable, um, our inability to navigate through life without some kind of expert guidance or control, uh, dependence upon therapists rather than friends. I mean, we could go on and on. The contemporary writer that I find most sort of mining this vein or plowing this row is Matthew Crawford. It seems to me that in his own way, whether it's Shopcraft as Soulcraft or his new book, Why We Drive, there's this, he shares with Illich a kind of concern that we're losing our capacity to kind of be self-directed, to navigate our way through life uh, under our own steam, which is, a, which is another, word of, another way of saying, or maybe a richer way of saying, losing our capacity to be free agents. Yes, this was the theme, certainly, that ran through Illich's most uh, famous books of social criticism, uh, um, the idea that modern institutions were disabling human capacities. Uh, this was true in education, he believed. It was certainly true in health. Um, it was it was more broadly the case with how uh, we, we approach technology. And He's often viewed as, Illich is often viewed as someone who is relentlessly hostile to technology, but that's not at all the case. Uh, what he he believed was necessary, however, was to uh, find a way, you know, he has a phrase to choose the dimensions of the roof of technological capabilities mm-hmm. that we want to live under, to to create a society in which technology does not rule us or dominate us, but where we keep distance from technology and, and uh, uh, use it 
for our own purposes. Um, again, he was writing before, you know, the, the metaverse or uh, some <laughs> of the, 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 the more immersive uh, um, technological innovations in the communications realm that are that are starting to uh, appear on the market today. I think he would have been horrified by some of those. Um, well, many of his prophecies have been borne out by the, especially social media and people's, they are incapacitated even to the point of suffering from mental health problems as a result of social right. media. Well, yes. Yeah. So, so, you know, his argument was that beyond a certain threshold, beyond a certain point um, of, of extension, uh, technology or tools, he, he used tools and technology basically interchangeably. Beyond that point, they, they could turn on the creator, that like Frankenstein's monster, they come back and, uh, and make our lives worse. He had many different examples of this. And uh, what, he, what he really advocated was a, a convivial approach to technology and that there were certain tools, certain technologies that were almost by definition convivial. So one was the, the library, the public library. Anybody can use it on their own terms. You can go in and learn. You can, you can, you know, borrow whatever book you want. Um, nobody's telling you how to use the library. Uh, you know, uh, in, in an ideal use, the computer could be such a tool as well. But when, you know, when, when the communications realm, when social media become so ubiquitous that uh, so so dominating that uh, our lives start being consumed by them, um, that is obviously uh, a, a threshold being passed. And um, yeah, here I think Gillich would have been absolutely horrified by some of the more modern uh, developments in this in this area. The watershed of his career, he was a bit of a kind of rock star, cultural um, celebrity, but he, he touched the third rail, which is um, feminism in a book called Gender, after which he was kind of cast into the outer darkness by um, elite academia and you know, the, the realm of, uh, of good opinion. Yes, I mean, he was he was a huge, huge intellectual figure uh, from the late sixties through most of the seventies. Um, you know, he was friends with Jerry Brown, who was uh, um, you know major politician at the time. Um, he, uh, he his essays would appear in the New York Review of Books and elsewhere. Uh, his his name was uh, was cited wildly. You know, widely he was giving speeches everywhere. Uh, but yeah, that that book, which came out in 1982, called Gender, um, yeah, that was the last of his volumes that came out from a major commercial publisher, and you know you could almost say he was canceled at the time, um, you know, and this was a long time ago. It was canceled by feminists. Uh, the book, you know, the book was very dense, and I I think probably misunderstood, uh, but it was provocative. It it made the argument that the the modern economic world of circulating commodities 
where everything would have a price, uh, that was only possible with the overcoming of gender. And, and that book is, is a scholarly historical work which looked at how every pre-modern society um, divided the human world into two distinct gendered realms. Uh, every pre-capitalist society had this, he, he noted, with men and women taking on different responsibilities. Uh, so, so you know, he was. He, he was. Yeah, I mean, I think, as I see it, the argument is that there were there were different avenues of competence because I that yes, that uh, there was a gendered uh, structure of the transmission of inherited wisdom. Uh, you know, uh, the men were kicked out of the room when the woman was being delivering her child uh, to be cared for by the other women in the community, and so on and so forth. Yes, that's right. Uh, um, you know, that the culture restrained um, the perfect interchangeability of all aspects of human life. And, and with the loss of that, Illich believed that something had been lost for both men and women. Uh, so he wasn't making an argument to restore patriarchal culture, uh, but that's how it was generally understood, and and um, some of the language in the book would, you know, would lend itself to that interpretation. But he was he was ferociously attacked by feminists right from the time he delivered the original lectures at Berkeley, on which the book was based. Uh, one of them denounced the book, uh, comparing it to Mein Kampf <laughs> in terms of its use of rhetoric. Um, you know, where he, he, he started being disrupted when he would give talks on campus by students who were uh, viewing him as this uh, misogynist. And from that point on, Illich, who was, you know, his politics were, were both left and right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, he had become, for a long time, a guru of the new left. And after that point, his reputation on the left uh, never, never bounce back. Um, and it wasn't that he stopped working. He, he kept lecturing. He, he released many very interesting books after that point, uh, but they came out uh, uh, from smaller publishers. And, uh, um, you know, he, he, he stopped being uh, a regular in the New York Review of Books or, or other such periodicals. He had a track record of making enemies. So the his experiences at Berkeley in the preparation of that book were not unique. He made enemies in the church. He made enemies in when he had a research center in Mexico for 15 years, he made enemies in the Mexican conservative political circles. Uh, I suppose he suffered the fate of um, uh, the biblical warning that a prophet is not loved in his own country. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, he. Um, it, there's no question that uh, that he um, he made em- enemies everywhere. He eventually got kicked out of Puerto Rico um, and uh, ran afoul of enemies there within the church and also at the Vatican. Um, you know, he's often described as being a defrocked priest. That isn't true. He uh, he was. Uh, subjected, however, to an inquisition in 1968, 
his call to the Vatican. This was a reaction in part to his opposition to uh, the, the, the development approach being taken by the church at the time. Uh, it was partly the result of his criticisms of other aspects of the church's bureaucracy. Um, his anti-institutionalism spilled over in a way that, that made him enemies. But the, you know, the Inquisition that uh, he participated briefly in reached no conclusion. But shortly after that point in 68 and 69, I think he, he uh, withdrew from active participation as a priest publicly, even though he continued to conduct masses privately. Uh, and he never, you know, he never viewed himself as breaking with the Catholic Church. He he always emphasized what, in his view, were, you know, orthodox positions in his mind. I suppose so, yeah, he, he made a lot of enemies. <laughs> uh, yes, um, I mean, one reads him, and uh, there, well, you know, there there's a deep theological motive. Uh, under underlying running through his work, um, you know, even as he often writes and speaks in this kind of more philosophical mode or cultural criticism, I'm wondering if we sort of draw things to a close here. Uh, there is a way this book came out just this last year. There are other revivals of interest in Illich that I've noticed, and I, it strikes me that, as you note, he sought a chastened modernity. Um, and we live in a time when the watchword is no longer progress, but sustainability. So there does seem to be a mm, cultural atmosphere where people are beginning to wonder whether we don't have to, to live with limits rather than always trying to transcend them. Um, although I say the difference is, is that Illich, Illich, there was a kind of joyfulness in the <clears throat> in his vision of chastened modernity, as opposed to the so often kind of gray, um, stiff upper lip quality of to talk about sustainability. Yes, I think that's right. He, um, you know, he he really he wants us to be able to enjoy life rather than just make sure we can sustain it. Yeah, he he was, a, you know, he he wrote a beautiful essay back in 1972 uh, in which he'd laid out um, his, his Catholicism, I think, most, most clearly. And, and there the key idea is uh, the, the idea of the kingdom and that, uh, you know, to be a Christian means to live in the spirit of the kingdom now that the Lord is coming at this moment so that you should live um, as if we're living at the end moment of time. And, you know, this meant a kind of communitarian life informed by, by, by faith, by hope. Uh, you know, the idea for Illich was that the incarnation had already happened. So, you know, it's, it's really up to us to live that way. Um, and he himself tried to live that way. He made, uh, along with making enemies, he also made uh, incredible lifelong friends and disciples, one of whom was was Cayley, um, you know, who really uh, was was close to Illich and, and admired him immensely. Um, you know, Illich, Illich 
would have these so-called uh, living room consultations with his friends and students, and he would supply them with wine and, and you know, inexpensive but good food. And, and the idea was that you would create a, a community. You know, he went back again and again, Illich, to the early, uh, early church, the inspiration of the early church. Um, and, you, you know, he, I, I think I quote this in the piece, he, he told Jerry Brown, you know, that if, if political life remains for us in this era, in this, this world of technology that's being created, then it starts with friendship. So this idea of friendship was extremely important, friendship in Christ. Uh, so that, you know, that essay is included in, in uh, one of these uh, books that have recently come out on Illich's thought. This is a collection of his very early essays, and it's called The Powerless Church and Other Selected Writings. That's worth looking at uh, as a compliment to uh, Cayley's uh, truly uh, magisterial biography. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Well, thank you, Brian, for taking the time to talk about this fascinating and important figure. And uh, I hope to have you back on our pages soon. Yeah, it was it was good. I it, it had been a while, you know, working as uh, as an editor. As I'm sure you can appreciate, the time is not as abundant to write as it used to be. But it had been a while since I'd written for first things. And, uh, yeah, the day job can get it away. <laughs> glad to appear. So thanks. Great. Good to talk to you. All right, thanks. All right, bye bye.